Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to the History of World War II podcast, Episode 209, Dark Days for Chiang Kai-shek. The Battle of Shanghai, which had been going on since August 13, 1937, had become a war of attrition, as Chiang Kai-shek refused to abandon the city, while General Matsui, commander of the Japanese Expeditionary Force, was obsessed with teaching the upstart and inferior Chinese who was the greater race. The Japanese had superior weapons, the Chinese defenders, more men. But from August to the 1st of October, the invaders had been able to push out from the coast, just north of the great city, while the defenders continued to backpedal in order to maintain cohesion. But now that Matsui had his reinforcements from the homeland and Taiwan, it was time to push south from Lodian and take Shanghai proper. The offensive commenced on October 1st with the, from west to east, Japanese 9th, 3rd, and 101st Divisions. Their goal was the Suzhou Creek, which, if reached, would bring the attackers just west of Shanghai. As for the defenders still within the city, they would then be cut off from help by the Nationalist Army and forced to retreat south in order not to be captured. Just three miles or 1.8 kilometers south of Lodien, the town of Liohong was the Japanese first victim. The town could not be held, so Chang wisely decided to abandon it to maintain a solid defensive line. The defenders moved back to the Wusan River another three miles to the south. Here, another defensive line was formed, but the Japanese, with their superior guns and air power, pushed the defenders back. Parts of the three Japanese divisions crossed the Wusong and stayed hard upon the heels of the reeling Chinese. By October 11th, Chiang Kai-shek's frustration was boiling over. The enemy, it seemed, could not be stopped, and it looked like the beginning of the end of Shanghai, China's largest city and the sixth largest city in the world. This could not be allowed to happen. The leader called a meeting that day, and it was decided that another defensive line would be constructed, this one at the town of Dachang, three miles south of the Wusong River, about halfway between the Wusong and the Suzhou Creek, Matsui's main goal. And as this new line stretched to the west, just past the road that came down from Lodien, that flank would be covered as well. All of this was well and good, but if this line couldn't hold, like the others, then how were the invaders to be pushed back? But that's when General Bai Chongzi, an informal advisor from the south, suggested that four divisions be used to hit on either side of the Wusong River. Not only could a new defensive line then be re-established there, but the Japanese divisions further south would be cut off from reinforcements. 
and supplies. It would be turning the tables on the invaders. As for where these men were supposed to come from, Bai Zhongzi also had the answer. Currently en route were four divisions from South China's Guangxi province. They would be here soon and could be split into two groups of two divisions. Then each group would take a bank of the Wusong and drive east, sweeping the enemy before them. Chang's German advisors were not enthusiastic about this, but the leader approved the plan anyway, probably out of desperation. The area between Wusong Creek and Dachong became a replica of the bloody fields of France during the Great War. Though some Chinese units kept at bay the enemy units before them, others managed to cross the Wusong and were attempting to push further south. The Japanese would use their artillery and air power to dominate a section of the enemy line before them, killing thousands, only to have fresh Chinese troops rush into the gap at the last minute. So when the Japanese came charging at the supposed weakened spot, they would soon retreat, having suffered immense casualties themselves. This loop played out for four days in the middle of October. Then the rains came, which sent General Matsui into a funk. Rain slowed everything down, from the arrival of supplies to his men's advances. Then he got word that several Chinese warlords and generals were moving their headquarters closer to the front. If that were so, then his hope of pushing them away was obviously not working. And if all these commanders were bringing men with them, that would explain why his better armed men were not able to reach Da Chang. No, now was not the time for a major push, as his men were clearly outnumbered. But Matsui was not a quitter, nor would he allow his men to be so. While the rains poured down, the Japanese focused on trudging their guns up to the front and digging their trenches closer to the enemy lines. That way, if there was another big push, then his men would have less ground to run across before getting at the enemy. But another reason to be downhearted was that the weather was getting colder and his men were still in their summer uniforms. Soon winter clothes would come for the 3rd and 11th Divisions, and they desperately needed that good news. By now, some 6,000 men of the lucky 3rd were now casualties, of one sort or another. But the news for Matsui was about to get much worse. On October 19th, word was sent to the Japanese general that several divisions from the Guangxi province further south had just arrived in the Shanghai area, and they seemed to be deploying near the Wusong Creek. Now, for the last week or so, other reinforcements had come, but all of them were sent directly into the fighting which is what kept Matsui's men away from Dachang. It made the general nervous that these four divisions were sent elsewhere. Clearly, a fight that de-evolved into a slugfest benefited the more numerous Chinese, so Matsui devised a plan outside of the box. Ordering a fleet of eight destroyers and about 20 transport ships to sail up the Yangtze River, far past Chuangshaku, their most northern possession, Matsui was hoping that Chang would pull men from Dachang and send them north. However, the nationalist leader 
did not fall for this ploy. So then Matsui raised the stakes by having the flotilla shell various locations as if readying for a landing. But again, Chang let the areas to the north suffer. His priority, rightly so, was protecting Shanghai. China's request to have this invasion brought before the League of Nations was about to get underway. For most foreigners, the only Chinese city they knew was Shanghai. If the fight continued somewhere else, then the Westerners would probably not care as much as it would be over an unknown entity that they probably couldn't find on a map. By the third week of October, the fighting positions of both sides had settled somewhat between Wusong Creek and Dachang. Occasionally, a Japanese officer would yell, Charge! and his men, so conditioned, would instantly rise up and head for the Chinese line some 150 yards away. Not that they made it as the Chinese machine guns mowed them down. The surviving attackers would then turn and run back, leaving their wounded comrades to slow, agonizing deaths. The Japanese never asked for a truce to gather their fallen, as the Chinese snipers took shifts, bringing anyone down foolish enough to show themselves. Mercy and mutual respect had long since left this field of battle. Then the rains returned and filled up the trenches. Now rice and other foods had to be eaten without preparation. The Japanese soldiers became despondent in their hope for victory, or even just staying alive. Some faked illness to try to get sent to the rear, but most prepared themselves for death. Meanwhile, thousands of miles away, U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt criticized Japan in a rather indirect way by saying in a speech in Chicago, it would seem to be unfortunately true that the economic of world lawlessness is spreading. He then, again, indirectly compared Japan to a disease and that the solution was to quarantine that disease to stop its spread. But Chiang Kai-shek, though delighted with such talk, was more practical. He told his various ambassadors to encourage other nations to ask for sanctions against Japan, to starve the resource-poor island nation into submission. And honestly, this was China's best bet, as the League in Brussels could agree on no particular course of action. Incredibly, on October 21st, as the Japanese thrust south had been halted, the Japanese foreign minister, Hirota Koki, spoke to the German ambassador in Tokyo, Herbert von Dirksen. He asked the foreigner if he was surprised that China had not sued for peace yet, or, frankly, had somehow staved off a military defeat. The German diplomat wisely sidestepped the question and instead offered up his country to mediate. Tokyo took up this offer and created its list of demands. First and foremost, certain Chinese territory in the north had to come under long-term control of Japan. That's what everything to date was all about. Resources. Next, the Chinese had to be willing to enlarge the demilitarized zone around Shanghai. If the Japanese could not get what they wanted there, 
through sheer force, then they would settle for economic dominance. The German ambassador in Tokyo sent the document to Oskar Trautmann, Berlin's ambassador in Nanjing. He gave it to Chiang Kai-shek. The nationalist leader, upon reading it, kept his face closed. Instead, he asked the German what he thought of the conditions. The German was decent enough, to be honest, by stating that what was written on the document didn't matter. It was the beginning of a possible settlement to end the war. However, that Chang should be careful. After all, Germany, near the end of the Great War, waited too long to seriously negotiate, and then found itself talking from a weakened military position. Better to talk now while the end result was still unknown. Yet Chang did not believe his situation was the same as it had been for the Germans back then. He had millions of men to call upon, and would use them, no matter how many died. In fact, other forces were at the moment being gathered south of Dachang, in case the latest defensive line there gave way. No, he would wait and see. Besides, he still had a relative ace up his sleeve. Those four divisions from Guangxi. The attack by these four divisions would begin on October 21st, but in the evening, as the soon-coming darkness would take away the enemy's greatest asset, its air power. However, the fighting just south of Wusong Creek had been so intense that these troops, at first, had been thrown into the fray when they first arrived. But now it was time to pull them out so they could get into position. Of course, troop movement of this magnitude was noticed, and General Matsui quickly figured out what was about to happen. And he was happy with it. As he wrote in his diary, it will give us an opportunity to catch the enemy outside of his prepared defenses and kill him there. His right flanks, north and south of Wusong Creek, were reinforced. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me, switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. When 7 o'clock came on October 21st, the Chinese guns opened up. This went on for an hour, and then the Guangxi divisions advanced eastward. Just north of Wusong Creek, those two divisions, led by the 176th Guangxi Division, hit the Japanese in their right flank. Their initial progress was better than expected, and all ran before them. However, the Chinese were soon slowed, not by the enemy, but by nature, as the creeks and canals ran every which way. These same obstacles had hindered the Japanese when they were on the offensive. Now the waterways were saving their lives. Still, the men of Guangxi surged forward. Then someone realized that if they moved too far, too fast, then their supply train 
would not be able to reach them when they stopped. That meant no food, water, or ammunition. So it was decided locally that the two divisions would pull back, and the men ended up abandoning most of what they had captured by morning. They told themselves that when night came again, they would retake the same territory and end the enemy's attack south. As for the two divisions south of Wusong Creek, this group, led by the 174th Guangxi Division, had started out well enough. But then those same waterways hindered them. These, plus the determined and forewarned Japanese defenses, stymied any further advance. To their rear, the Chinese had enough bridge-building material to cross the canals to get to the Japanese lines, but somehow they were never brought forward. As the night of October 21st-22nd went by, the Chinese troops worried what would happen to them when daylight came, namely that Japanese bombers would soon be overhead. With this pending doom in their collective thinking, the men backtracked, to their starting points, to better defend themselves against the coming air attacks. Again, these men, like their comrades north of the creek, told themselves that when night came, they would make up for their lack of progress, and this time remember to bring up the bridge supplies. During the night, both groups had lost many men to achieve their advances, only to give them away. When the sun arose on October 22nd, the Japanese took to the air with almost every available warplane they had. To the north of Wusan Creek, one of the 176 Division's battalions was surrounded by enemy ground troops. The Japanese then opened up with their artillery, and a few hours later, the entire battalion was wiped out. The only success the Chinese had that day was when another section was attacked by Japanese infantry, which was supported by five tanks. The defenders' lines almost broke, but at the last minute, other troops were rushed in for support. As for the tanks, two of the five quickly became stuck. This allowed the Chinese to focus on one, which was destroyed. The two remaining retreated with the infantry. When night came on the 22nd, the Chinese again advanced. This time, they held on to most of what they had captured during the night. However, during their attack, the Japanese were also busy moving all available men and guns to the two right flanks. When dawn came, not only did every Japanese plane climb into the air to go hunting, but the Japanese infantry moved out, pushing west instead of south. The Japanese air power focused on the 174th Division south of the creek, as it was seen as the greater threat. The men of the 174th disappeared as bombs rained down on them that October 23rd. By the time the Japanese pulled back, the Chinese had lost some 2,000 men, including two brigade commanders, six regimental commanders, and many battalion and company commanders. The great Chinese counterattack was over. Chiang Kai-shek's German advisors tried to keep their faces passive, but amongst themselves, they had predicted this outcome. Little intelligence had been gathered beforehand, 
not enough bridge-making materials was rounded up, or kept with the moving front. The men of Guangxi had little fighting experience, as did their officers. But worst of all, the Chinese had attacked where the enemy was strongest, near their front lines. Either way, the war over Shanghai was being lost by the defenders, and yet the Chinese could not leave the city, as the meeting in Brussels was about to get underway, which did not change the fact that the front was collapsing. Chang therefore decided, for political reasons, to give up his positions to the north of the city. But that foreigners would continue to comment back home, he would have a detachment remain behind and harass the Japanese. In Jabe, located immediately north of the foreign settlements. That way, the Westerners would have a front-row seat as his men were slaughtered, for there could be no other outcome. It was decided that the Chinese 1st Battalion of the 524th Regiment, just over 1,000 men, would remain behind and fortify the Four Banks Warehouse, just south of Wusong Creek and within sight of the foreigners, and make their last stand. It was their job to show that China was still in this fight and to make the Japanese pay heavily when they finally took the building. These men would be remembered as China's lost battalion. By October 23rd, the Chinese troops, up and down the line, were shaken by the lack of success of the Guangxi divisions. If four divisions could not shift the Japanese then what chance did the latest defensive line at Da Chang have? And Cheng must have agreed, as the troops were ordered to pull back. So that night of October 23rd, 24th, the defenders, those stationed between Wusong Creek and Da Chang, hard upon the Zhao Mantang Creek, just two miles further south, began to pull back. Yet the Japanese sentries caught this, and reported it back to Matsui. The general knew that, finally, his moment had come. The monumental losses he had sustained to get to this point were about to pay off. At 9 a.m. on October 24th, he ordered his divisional commanders to attack, to drive south as hard and as fast as they could. One way to defeat a larger force was to have it come at you while you were in a strong defensive position, the next best way was to catch the larger force on the run and never let them stop, all the while slaughtering them. Just hours into the morning of October 24th, not only did the Japanese, from left to right, the 9th and 3rd Divisions, push all the way to the Tong Creek, some units had been able to cross there, it seemed that soon, perhaps even before the day was out, the western approaches to Shanghai would be open. And yet General Matsui was not satisfied. After all, all of this still had to be considered only the opening moves to the battle for Shanghai. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are in your neighborhood, ready to help personalize your insurance. 
and you can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. Visit statefarm.com today to get a great rate without sacrificing great service. That's statefarm.com. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Greetings, everyone, from Central Virginia. So just to let you know, I'm pretty sure I can get out one more episode before the end of the year. Then there'll be a short break. Um, I spend time with the family, but I will be writing. So there'll be a, a, a little explosion of episodes coming out in January. Uh, I'm going to I'm gonna um, keep Shanghai going and the war uh, between Japan and China going, but I'm going to also mix it up with some other things. We're going to take a look at British Bomber Command, what they've been trying to do um, so we'll play with the timeline a little bit, but I'll make it clear what I'm doing. But we'll kind of get a couple storylines going just to keep it keep it interesting, keep it fresh for you. Um, if you have not filled out that survey for me, I mentioned a couple of episodes ago. If you could just take a minute um, to fill it out, that would really be great and helpful for me. And that will be in the episode notes as well, along with the... Um, the one for the book. And you should definitely check that out. It looks like it's going to be really good. Um, it's uh, December 4th when this comes out. Still a little bit of time for Christmas. If you want to order coffee mugs from me, if you're in the United States, just go to the website. If you're anywhere else, just shoot me an email, um, wwiipodcast at gmail.com. Tell me where you're at. Um, I have the FDR and the um, Churchill mugs. Um, just let me know where you live and I can get you a, a quote pretty quick. And then you just let me know if you want it or not. That's, uh, I'll keep it nice and simple for you. So just think about the coffee mugs. Or if you want to get membership for someone um, for a Christmas present, you can um, find all the information on the website as well. So again, uh, one more episode before the end of the year. Thank you for everyone who listens and supports the show. I really do appreciate it. And I hope you all have a very safe and happy holiday. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the the weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's, uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can say big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.